This past Sunday had a sermon entitled uh, The Building Material of Worship. And in that sermon, in fact, why don't you go ahead and turn over to 1 Chronicles chapter 23. 1 Chronicles chapter 23. And in that sermon, what I shared was how that when David became king, approximately 10 years after he became the king, he had this tent built. It was called a tabernacle. And keep in mind, this is what, isn't one of those little, well, let's go camping in the woods tent. I mean, this would have been a really large tent, very large. And it's where he wanted to keep <clears throat> the ark, the ark of a covenant. And so he did. And from the time that the ark was there in the tabernacle until Solomon had completed the building of the temple and the ark was brought into the temple for approximately 40 years you know there was constant praise and worship going on constant and how that I, I shared how that the workers well prior to the um, the temple construction beginning you know the people would have heard this because where that ark and that tabernacle were located, it was kind of like on a hill. And so that hill would have reflected a lot of that sound going out. Man, people could have heard that for miles around. It was just absolutely incredible. And the people that were involved doing that, that was their job. It was full-time ministry, praising the Lord, worshiping God. That was all they were supposed to do. And this went on, you know, for 40 years. And I tried my best to paint an image of what it would have been like back then. And I, I shared a little bit about how that there were so many people involved with this. Well, I want to just show you a little bit more here uh, as far as how many folks were involved. I won't go into a tremendous amount of detail, but in First Chronicles chapter 23, if you jump down to, um, well, just look at verse 5. Moreover, 4,000 were porters and 4,000 praised the Lord with the instruments which I made, said David, to praise therewith. What a lot of people don't know is that David created a lot of instruments that spawned instruments we have today. I mean, the piano can be traced back to what David created. Stringed instruments that we use today can be traced back to what David created. But you have 4,000 porters and 4,000 that praise the Lord with instruments. And if you just look at the, the part, that, you know, 4,000 that praise the Lord with instruments, 4,000 people. 4,000. 4,000 people. That's incredible. Well, then if you look over in First Chronicles chapter 25, in verse 1 it says, Moreover, David and the captains of the host separated to the service of the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jeduthun, who should prophesy with harps, with psalteries, with cymbals. And the number of the workmen according to the service was of the sons of Asaph, Zakur, and Joseph, of Nethaniah, and Asarla, the sons of Asaph, under the hands of Asaph, 
which prophesied according to the order of the king of Jeduthun, of the sons of Jeduthun, Gedaliah and Zareh, and Josiah, Hashabiah, and Mattathiah, six, under the hands of their father Jeduthun, who prophesied with a harp to give thanks and praise to the Lord. Of Heman, the sons of Heman, Bukiah, Methaniah, Uziel, Shabuel, and Jeremoth, and Hananiah, Hanani, Eli, the rest of them. <laughs> Verse 5. All these were the sons of Heman, the king's seer, in the words of God to lift up the horn. And God gave to Heman fourteen sons and three daughters. And all these were under the hands of their father for song in the house of the Lord, with cymbals, psalteries, and harps for the service of the house of God according to the king's order to Asaph, Jeduthun, and Heman. So the number of them with their brethren that were instructed in the songs of the Lord, even all <coughs> that were cunning, was 200, fourscore, and eight. That's 288. So basically what we see here are 288, uh, what he's describing are skilled musicians, in addition to the singers. So you're looking at roughly 4,288 people involved in this. Now, if you continue reading in 1 Chronicles chapter 25, you'll see that, um, uh, well, they, they cast lots to find out who would be grouped together. And in verse 9, Now the first lot came forth for Asaph to Joseph, the second to Gedaliah, who with his brethren and sons were twelve. And then... Um, Verse 10, it says, the third, and then the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, and so forth, all the way down to verse 31, the four and twentieth to Romanti Ezar, he, his sons, and his brethren were twelve. So when you go through all of that, what you see is you had uh, 24 groups of 12 people each, which comes out to the 288 that he mentions there in uh, verse 7. So what, what you're seeing is, I'll just say it like this, all the different praise teams that had the musicians, and then you had singers included with this. So, and I don't know exactly um, how they broke this up, like which praise team did what uh, within the particular day. I don't know if they were broken down into these particular hours, whatever it was. Bottom line is this. You had thousands of people who saw as their only job to worship God. That was it. To worship God. Now, we're not going to go back into Psalms. In fact, I didn't even write any of this down. But when you get into the book of Psalms, over and over and over again, what we see is an emphasis on what those of us who love God are supposed to be doing. You know, worshiping the Lord. It's We're at a place here in this church to where, um, well, compared to where we were, you know, 20 plus years ago, we're much further along in the worship than what we were. But yet, there's still a long ways to go. There are people who would come into this church, well, and that's happened. I mean, it happened during the conference. People who came in and essentially never experienced congregational worship like what we had during the conference. And what has become, if you will, kind of a norm for us is something incredibly amazing to so many other Christians. 
And I'm telling you right now, there are a lot of Christians out there looking for this. Whether, I mean, what we did tonight with the recorded music. My goodness. There are, uh, there are people who've come in here who have been, I don't want to use the word shocked, but they've been, let me just present it this way. It's like, wow, this is recorded music. And look what these people are doing. I've never seen anything like this. Well, glory to God. See, you can do it with recorded music if you want to. The downside to recorded music is, you know, you can't, I mean, you're stuck with how it is. You know, you can't move things around, whatever. But still, it works. For us to, I mean, if they had people who weren't even spirit-filled and not even born again, who knew that their responsibility was to praise God, and they did it every day. Some of these people, they, they may not have lived that entire 40 years. They may have passed away. But they passed away praising God. Some of these people, maybe some of them, uh, maybe they weren't feeling good. And, you know, I had to call in sick, as we say. I don't know. Over 40 years, there could have been a lot of things happening. And then some people, you know, they get replaced and, and what have you. But 40 years. And for us, you know, we should, we should be approaching the place to where we look forward to 40 years of praise and worship. Now let me explain what I mean. Times of coming together when all we do, and we know the reason we're coming in, is just to praise the Lord. Because see, those folks, when they showed up for their shift, they knew, I'm here to worship God. That's it. I'm here to play my instrument and sing. I'm here to worship God for the, the appointed time. That's why I'm here. We should get to that place to where we long for it. That we look for times, can we just come together and all we do is worship God. Just come together for you know a couple of hours and just worship God. Doesn't matter. Recorded, it doesn't matter. You know, can we do that? Yeah, we can do that, and we probably will. But I want you to notice something here in um, at the beginning of First Chronicles twenty-five. It says in verse one: Moreover, David and the captains of the host separated to the service of the sons of Asaph and Heman. And Jeduthun, who should prophesy with harps and psalteries and with cymbals and the number of the workmen according to their service. Now stop right there. And I want to clarify something. When it's talking about the musicians doing what the musicians do, you, you need to keep in mind there are also singers involved with this. So it's not exclusively the musicians all the time. Singers were also involved. But we continue, verse 2. And the sons of Asaph, Zachar, Joseph, Nathaniah, um, Asarela, and the sons of Asaph, under the hands of Asaph, which prophesied according to the order of the king. Of Jeduthun, the sons of Jeduthun, all of these sons, six, under the hands of their father Jeduthun, who prophesied with a harp to give thanks and to praise the Lord. Notice that in three verses it talks about worshiping God is a form of prophesying. You see that? It's right, it's, yeah, it's right there. And that word, where, where it says um, in verse 1, 
prophesied, verse 3, prophesied, verse 4. It says, uh, or um, verse 1, prophesy, and, or, uh, yeah, prophesy, verse 2, prophesied, verse 3, prophesied, but they all come from the same Hebrew word, um, nabah. And essentially, what it means is that it, the same thing as the word prophesy in the New Testament. It's just a Hebrew version of it. And it's not necessarily where they would stand around and, and be playing and singing, yay, within three days, God is going to move. Not that kind of prophecy. It was the prophecy of the declaration of the Word of God, His greatness, what He's done, what He's doing, His faithfulness, so on and so forth. That's what this is talking about. So, this is interesting because from God's perspective, these fellows back then, when they would begin playing and singing, God considered it to be a form of prophecy, a declaration of the reality and the truth of who God is. And if you go into the book of Psalms and you start reading some of these songs, you come across some, and it talks about well, we're not going to go and read any, but it'll talk about, um, O Lord, our Lord, how wonderful are you. O Lord, our God, great are you in the heavens, so on and so forth. Okay, that's what these people were singing and declaring. And God considered it a form of prophecy. The song, and this was interesting because I did not plan this, but... We were singing a song earlier tonight during the, uh, the worship. It talked about, you know, fear you know, will not control me. Fear will not conquer me. I belong to Jesus. Fear will not conquer me. And over and over and over we kept singing that. And then it started, when I, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. When I walk through the valley, and over and over kept singing that. And some people might think, you know, well, good heavens, I mean, can't we sing something else? But see what's happening. That is a prophetical declaration. And sometimes when you keep singing it and singing it and singing it and singing it, all of a sudden, boom, it hits home. Yeah, fear will not conquer me. I belong to Jesus. And you walk out changed. You walk out realizing there's nothing for me to worry about. Nothing. I don't care who it is, what it is, where it is, or why it is. There's nothing for me to worry about. Because fear will not conquer me. Depression will not conquer me. None of these things are going to conquer me. I belong to Jesus. I've been delivered. So, when we come together for praise and worship, it's not just that we are, you know, well, we're singing, praise God, I really like this. Man, it's good. But we are, when we open our mouths and begin to speak these things, we are declaring... Things about God. I will see your goodness in the land where, where I'm living. You know? Okay, that's a declaration of God's truth. That's a declaration of who we are. And you have a lot of Christians, I'm telling you, they would, well, I, I don't know about all that. I mean, I ain't seen no much goodness around here lately. I'm, you know, my life is pretty stinky. Well, you know what? That's your fault. You, you listen, your circumstances may be lousy, yeah, but you, if you believe the Word of God then you will say, I will see the goodness of God in the land where I'm living. 
You'll say that. That will be your declaration. You will be prophesying to yourself and to your situation. When we sing this, consider it this way. We come together and we sing these songs. And there are people watching. We don't know who's watching. We don't know what they're going through. But in a manner of speaking, we're kind of like the 288 and the 4,000 standing before the, the tabernacle and declaring this to the nations as they are watching, to the states, to the cities. We're declaring prophetically who God is to them, what God's done for them, what they have in God, what they can do in God, who Jesus is to them, on and on. We're declaring this. They could be sitting in their living room. Who knows what they're going through? And here we are declaring this, singing this, prophesying this into their lives. And it could change them. It could change them permanently. God considers true praise and worship to be a form of prophecy. And this is something that we need to keep in mind. And um, we need to focus on it. I mean, we need to understand that. Now let me just say this. Well, I'll say it later on. (laughs) Turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 13. Because... You know, what I was sharing this past Sunday morning, what I'm sharing here tonight about the praise and worship, we can uh, become excited about it, motivated for it, looking forward to the doing of it, and so on. But there's something else that we have to keep in mind. Now take a look here in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 1. And David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said unto all the congregation of Israel, If it seem good unto you that it be of the Lord our God, let us send abroad unto our brethren everywhere that are left in all the land of Israel, and and with them also to the priests and Levites, which are in their cities and suburbs, that they may gather themselves unto us, And let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we inquired not of it, uh, not at it in the days of Saul. And all the congregation said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David gathered all Israel together from Shihor of Egypt, even unto the entering of Hemeth, to bring the ark of God from Kirjath Jerem. And David went up, and all Israel to Bala, that is, to Kirjath-Jerim, which belonged to Judah, to bring up thence the ark, of God, the ark of God the Lord, that dwelleth between the cherubims, whose name is called on it. And they carried the ark of God in a new cart out of the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. And now look at this. And David and all Israel played before God with all their might, with all and with singing, and, and with harps, and with psalteries, with timbrels, and with cymbals, and with trumpets. In other words, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What we were talking about this past Sunday. Is this not describing them doing that? And when they came under the threshing floor of Kidron, Kidon, Chidon, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he smote him, because he put his hand to the ark, and there he died before God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. Therefore, that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. 
And David was afraid of God that day, saying, How shall I bring the ark of God home to me? So David brought not the ark home to himself to the city of David, but carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. Now, some people have wondered, well, why in the world would God do that? Well, you don't, we're not going to turn to this. But when you go back to Exodus 25, it describes how that, um, well, when the ark was built, there were these rings on each end, each corner of the ark. And there were these special poles, referred to as staves, that were supposed to fit through those rings. And then the priest, you had a priest on each corner, was supposed to pick it up, and then they carried it. So as they were walking, you had a two in front on each corner of the ark, two in back on each corner of the ark. They're holding the poles, but the ark is suspended by those rings with the poles going through them. Now that's the way the ark was supposed to be carried. And then along with that, over in Numbers chapter 4, God said, don't touch the holy thing or you die. If you touch it, you die. Now, this was the law that God gave to Israel. And he gave it to Israel roughly 400 years before this incident. And what that means is, God didn't change. His word did not change. What he said still held true to that time. Well, then if you look in, we're we're coming back here to chapter 13, but in chapter 15... Look at verse 11. And David called for Zadok and Abiathar the priests, and for the Levites, for Uriel and Asiah and Joel and Shemaiah and Eliel and Aminadab, and said unto them, Ye are the chief of your fathers of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, both ye and your brethren, that ye may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel unto the place that I have prepared for it, because ye did not at the first... The Lord our God, because you did it not at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us, for that we sought him not after the due order. So the priest and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bear the ark of God upon their shoulders with the staves thereon, as Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord. So, David got it right. But now the ark had, a, had stayed in the home of Obed-Edom for three months. Okay? Now my question is this, how come David didn't know all this to begin with? Because if you study the scriptures, you'll find out that the responsibility of the parents was to teach the children the law. Well, the law included carry the ark with staves and don't touch it. And then along with that, David would have been raised in you know, Hebrew school, where there would have been a Levite explaining these things, something's not right. David, I don't know what the deal is, but for some reason he came to the conclusion, or, I mean, how do you forget some of these things? As I'm reading this, I'm thinking, even I know this. If if that had been me, I wouldn't have done that. I would have said, get those poles and put them to the rings. How did David not know this? But then, what we read in chapter 15, 
You know, it's almost like he's blaming those priests. And I'm thinking, hold on, dude, you're the king. And there's more to this. Because in chapter 13, he said, all right, let's get everybody together, including, verse 2, the priests and the Levites that are in the cities, gather them together so we can bring the ark here where we are. So there were priests present. There were people who knew. Well, how do we know they knew? Well, because some of these people were the ones he talked to the second time and said, get it right this time. Like, wait a second. David, come on. You should have known this. This is something that you should have done because this was the law of God. This was, this was a super commandment, if you will. Carry it with poles and don't touch it. Well, David, he thought, you know, a brand new cart. This is great. And uh, we'll have these oxen. Well, then they hit, you know, a bump in the road. And, and this guy, Uzzah, I mean, what would you have done? Would you have just let the ark fall off the cart? No way. We all would have gone, ah, and grabbed it to study it. <laughs> and when he did, God struck the guy dead. And so it says here, David, he was afraid of God, and he was displeased because the Lord had done this. So in, in the mind of David, he may have been thinking, I can't believe this, we're trying to do something good for God. We're trying to serve Him. You know, God, why did you do this? Come on! You know, we're trying to get the ark you know, somewhere back to where it needs to be. This guy was innocent. He's just trying to help. He's trying to keep the ark from being broken. Come on, God, why did you do that? And what I see in here is he was displeased, verse 11, and he was afraid, verse 12. So I'm sure he had mixed emotions about what he would say verbally, out loud. But God knew his heart. And the, the ark stayed at this people's home for three months. How come it took three months to figure this out? They should have known it that day. Priests should have come up and said, Oh, King David, long live the king. And by the way, you see those rings on the side there at the corners? Okay, well, there's supposed to be these poles that go through it. You remember, you were raised in Hebrew school. You were taught the law. They could have fixed this problem the next day. But it took them three months to figure this out. Now, here's what I'm getting at. Like I said, it was about 400 years after God gave that instruction to where this event took place. But God's word didn't change. He said, carry the ark with the staves through the rings and don't touch it. Well, they didn't obey. In other words, David, he was the king. He came up with a doctrine that sounded really good to the people. I mean, it says everybody was happy about this. It sounded really good. And now, remember, it says here in chapter 13, in verse 8, that the people, they played and sang before God with all their might, you know, with all the different instruments. So, here are the people. They're rejoicing, they're shouting, they're singing, they're praising. And the ark is on the cart. So we have an abundance of witnesses here. And God's listening to all this praise and worship, and He's receiving it from them because, well, they meant it. 
But the Word of God, it doesn't change. So here's everybody praising and worshiping and glorifying God and playing the instruments. I mean, what a parade. And then, you know, the cart hits this bump and the ark starts, you know, moving. I can just hear this collective gasp. <gasps> and then Uzzah, he oh, reaches out to steady it. And he steadies it. And he's, you know, feeling good. Oh, whew, praise God. Oops, boom, down he goes. Can you imagine everybody around there? I, I, I don't think there was too much more singing. Or playing. <laughs> Everything just kind of stopped. And people are looking. What happened? He must have had a heart attack. Whatever it was. What happened? What's going on? Now, God, <coughs> God's word didn't change. Not one bit. The standard never changed. And guess what? The standard of God's word is still the same today. What God, let's just focus on what the apostles gave us in the New Testament. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Now you have people out there that are telling you it's changed. They're telling you it's altered. They're telling you that changes in society make a change in the Word of God. No, it doesn't. People that, well, I'm telling you in the body of Christ, people who will defend an ungodly law passed by the government as being the new standard according to the Bible. That's not true. Not at all. God's word is still the same, no matter what. Now, if you live in adultery, guess what? You're, you're going to the lake of fire. It doesn't matter if adultery is no longer illegal in the state where you live. If you do it, guess what? If you, if you fill your life with perversions, then guess what? You're going to hell. See, that's the standard of the Word of God. It hasn't changed. Now, here's what I'm getting at. When um, we talk about the praise and worship, and we get really excited about it, or motivated, and so on and so forth, we need to understand praise and worship alone is not enough. Our doctrine must be correct if we want to see the fullness of God's presence in this tabernacle or in any church. It can't simply be the praise and the worship. Look over in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And this is where a lot of Christians seem to be confused, or at least that's my impression. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21, it says, verse 1, Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Or in other words, take a census. And David said to Joab and to the rulers of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba even unto Dan, and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And Joab answered, The Lord make his people a hundred times so many more as they be. But, my Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then doth my Lord require this thing? Why will he be a cause of trespass to Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Wherefore Joab departed and went through all Israel and came to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people unto David. And all they of Israel were a thousand thousand and a hundred thousand men 
that drew the sword. And Judah was four hundred threescore and ten thousand men that drew the sword. But Levi and Benjamin counted he not among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. Now you're wondering, well, why is that such a big deal? Because when you go back and you read, well, if you start reading in Exodus and you get all the way through up to this point, what you're going to find is God essentially saying, you don't need to sit around and count how many warriors you have, how many people you have, because I will save you, protect you, work with you, etc., and so forth. And one of the things, if you go back and take, and, and I didn't write the uh, specific passages down, but God, when you pay attention to what's written, it's like God was saying, you don't take a census unless I tell you to. Otherwise, you let it go. Well, see, David, he came up with his own theology. Now, you think, well, this is just a simple thing. I mean, all you're doing is taking a census to find out how many people there are. That shouldn't be that big of a deal. But if God says don't do it, guess what? The word doesn't change. And God gave that instruction centuries before David was even born. Well, that's why this instruction, that's why Joab tried to talk him out of it and why Joab didn't fully complete the task because it says here the king's word was abominable to Joab. Well, verse 7, God was displeased with this thing, therefore he smote Israel. And David said unto God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing, but now I beseech thee, do away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. You know what? When you disobey God and the consequences start rolling, yeah, you can repent and God will acknowledge that, but you need to understand God doesn't work a time machine and back things up. What happens, happens, and you are stuck with it. And you have to live with it. And it says here, verse 9, David spake unto Gad, uh, or The Lord spake unto Gad David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I offer three things. Choose, <clears throat> choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. In other words, and I can remember, this sounds like the, some of the stuff I went through. All right, you got a choice. You know, you going to stay home, be grounded for 300 years? Or, you know, and you're trying to figure out, okay, which is going to be the, le- the least severe? Well, gave, um, in uh, verse 11, Gad came to David and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Choose thee either three years famine or three months to be destroyed before thy foes, while that the sword of thine enemies overtaketh thee, or else three days the sword of the Lord, even the pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the coast of Israel. Now therefore, advise thyself what word I shall bring again to him that sent me. And so he presents these choices to David. Now it doesn't matter which one David chooses. It's going to happen. I mean, David could have said, okay, well, you know what? I'm going to, um, oh, let's see here. I'll choose the three days of the sword of the Lord um, and the pestilence. No, 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 wait, I don't like that one. Okay, I know. Um, how about this? The sword of the enemies coming in to overtake me. We've got a bunch of good soldiers here. I mean, after all, we just took a census, right? So we know how many can fight. Yeah, I bet you we could fight these guys. No. See, he knew. He knew whatever I choose is going to happen. I can't stop it. Well, David said to Gad, verse 13, I am in a great strait. Let me fall now into the hand of the Lord, for very great are his mercies, but let me not fall into the hand of man. 
So the Lord sent pestilence upon Israel, and there fell of Israel 70,000 men. 70,000 men. Because of what David did. The simple thing of taking a census, which doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But David came up with his own theology. And he decided this is what we'll do. In spite of the fact he wasn't supposed to. And 70,000 people died. I strongly believe that maybe none of those 70,000 people knew why they died. But David did. Gad knew. Joab knew. And there would have been others who knew. 70,000 people. That is incredible. 70,000 people. Now... When it comes, who was David? He's the guy that basically wrote that big chunk of the book of Psalms, made all these instruments, led the people in praise and worship, assigned all the singers and the musicians for this constant, what turned out to be 40 years of praise and worship in front of the tabernacle. That's what David was known as, known for, known to do. And yet look at this. 70,000 people die because of a, of a simple, what seems to be seemingly no big deal action on his part. In fact, he, didn't even, he wasn't even the one who went out and did the counting. He gave an instruction for somebody else to do it. No matter how charismatic the personality, or how sincere the, the pastor, wrong doctrine can lead church members to hell. 70,000 people died and didn't understand why. And when you have a pastor standing up in a church delivering doctrine that is full of, well, you don't have to repent. Or, you know what? Um, You know, if you love each other, it's okay. You know, you men, you can marry each other. You women, you can marry. I mean, whatever goes on in these churches. They talk about God. They talk about His love. They talk about His mercy. They talk about His goodness. They talk about Jesus. They talk about the cross, the resurrection, the shed blood. They talk about being born again. Talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit. But, if they get into other stuff that is wrong before God, if they try to put the ark on a cart and then touch it, guess what? Somebody dies. When they, when they try to take a census, you, you understand I'm using illustrations here. When they deliver a doctrine that God has said, no, that's not in my word. No, that's not in here. David isn't one of the people who died. David, he sat back and he watched these people die. I have no idea how this judgment at the very end for humanity is going to play out, but I have no doubt that it's possible. You've got pastors out there that God is going to say, I want you to watch this, as, quote, 70,000 members enter into the lake of fire for all eternity because of what they did. And then they're next to follow in. Because God warns those who teach that you're going to be held to a higher standard of judgment. That's over in James. Now, you can have a mega church that has incredible worship that is genuine and heartfelt, just like it was in First uh, Chronicles chapter 13. 
David and all of Israel playing the instruments, singing with all of their might unto God. But the cart was still, the ark was still on a cart. And you can have a mega church with that kind of worship, but doctrinal error will still send you on a path away from God. Even though you're still acknowledging God. Uzzah, he still acknowledged God. David still acknowledged God. Joab acknowledged God. The 70,000 that died still acknowledged God. That's not the, the, the issue. The issue is, are you doing what the Word of God has to say? What doctrine are you living by? You see, um, there are a lot of songs that we sing. The doctrine in the church where the, the song originated might be questionable. And in some cases, it is questionable. But the singing of the song is not an endorsement of the theology of the, the church where it was first sung. I want to make that very, very clear. And the reason is because there are some people out there who seem to think if you sing a song by a certain church, well then you're in agreement with them. Or, you know, or something like that. That's not true. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Just because we sing a particular song doesn't mean that we're in agreement with the doctrine of the person that wrote it. Or the church that recorded it. Because you have so much incredible praise and worship music out there available, like you know what we did tonight. And I, I'm not saying anything plus or minus about the person that, that penned the song. I'm just saying it's out there. It's on the internet. But what I know is this. Some Christians can become so enamored by what they're seeing on YouTube or whatever, the praise and the worship, that they begin to gravitate toward the teaching of that particular church. And I'm telling you now, if you do that, you could be in a heap of trouble. Because if you don't take the time to examine the doctrine by the contextual light of Scripture, you could end up being led astray. Easily. Easily be led astray. Because, see, one of the things that praise and worship does, it, it helps to open you up to receive on a spiritual level. So, yeah, the praise and worship is great. Incredible. Tremendous. But then when somebody gets up and begins to teach, it's like, you've got to be kidding me. I remember... Kathy and I were at a church, and the pastor had wanted me to be the guest speaker for like a week. The problem is, he had already invited somebody else. And this somebody else had traveled, you know, a few thousand miles to get there. So, that's okay. No offense, it's fine. Well, we went to the Sunday night service. And we're watching this, and the guy that did the presentation, I'm not giving his name. Some of you may know him, and some of you might even have some of his books. He wasn't the senior pastor, but he's one of the staff people. Well, as he's teaching, I'm sitting there, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. I'm waiting, you know, for something beyond the surface. It wasn't that what he was saying was horrible. 
I, I'm waiting. Okay, give me something to chew on here. Give me something to chew on. And then the, about the last, I don't know, 10 minutes of the service, he showed a video clip from a movie that kind of fit in with the sermon. It, it was something from The Lion King. And I'm thinking, seriously, come on, man. And then, you know, when it was over, he shared a little more and the service closed. And I was really disappointed. And I didn't want to say anything until the people that invited me, wasn't the pastor, it was somebody else, they invited me. The next day, they, they asked, well, what did you think about the service last night? I said, well... And so I told them. And they said, yeah, that's what we thought too. <laughs> I'm thinking, whew, no strife. Thank you, Jesus. See, but the thing is, the guy that was the guest speaker... I don't know if he's still with this church, but he was a part of a church that is huge and is well known for the praise and worship that, that they produce. Guys, if we don't guard our hearts concerning the doctrine, then all the praise and worship in the world, it cannot neutralize error. All that praise and worship they were doing to try to bring the ark, it, it didn't change. God didn't sit up in heaven and say, oh man, that guy, I wish he hadn't touched the ark. Oh boy, you know, he, he's supposed to die. But, oh man, they've been praising me and worshiping me. I mean, look at them down there, angels. Look at this. This is amazing. Yeah, all right, yeah, I'm going to give you guys a pass. No, it didn't happen. Now, in my imagination, God's up there watching this, and they're praising, they're worshiping, worshiping, praising, and, and all the angels are up there around God, around the throne, and they're looking at this, and oh, wow, look at this. God, they're praising you. Check this out. This is wonderful, wonderful. God knew what was coming, and he's watching, and all of a sudden, whoop, the cart's about to, the, you know, it jiggles, and the ark's about to fall, and Uzzah reaches out and, and steadies it. <laughs> I can just imagine those angels, their eyes go boing, and they look at God, and God looks at them, just shrugs his shoulder, and bloop, Uzzah drops dead. And I, one of the angels, one of the younger ones, would have said, Wow, God, you're serious. <laughs> and one of the older angels would have, boom, give him an elbow in the head. Okay, maybe it didn't happen like that. But the angels saw this, and they knew. They knew what happened. We can, be, we can be so impressed by the praise and worship of groups, of churches, whatever, but guys, we cannot allow that praise and worship, no matter how good it is, to draw us into a place of doctrinal error where we slowly but surely start stepping off that path of truth and end up being separated from God for all eternity. So enjoy the praise and worship. And I mean, get involved with it. But, guard your heart. The, we have to have that praise and worship. We have to keep going deeper and deeper into the praise and worship. We have to do this. But we also have to stay focused on keeping our doctrine correct, lined up with the Word of God, and stay away from error. So be encouraged in this. And be encouraged again to know 
God's Word hasn't changed. And it's not going to change. But He is faithful. And we are going to see His goodness in the land we're living in. Praise the Lord. Please stand.